Well, good evening, saints. Good evening. Um, we've been talking about hell, and uh, the punishment in hell is endless, but this series is coming to a close. So, um, just as, as a way of a, a little bit of preview of things that are coming up, next week is the World Prayer Focus, uh, where we talk about and, and pray the world. Our missions department runs that, and it starts a little earlier at 5.30 on Sunday nights. And then uh, the week after that, we're going to have our regular Sunday night, but we're going to have a guest speaker, uh, Lamar Walker, who's an inner city missionary from this church, great guy, who's been faithfully serving in uh, some of the roughest areas you could go to, uh, which you don't have to take a plane ride to get, you just have to take a drive downtown to get to, uh, will be sharing with us. Uh, After... That, we'll be starting a new series on Titus, uh, which is a fabulous book, one of my favorite books. So that's some of the things coming up. Last week, we started answering some of the questions that were submitted by y'all. Originally, it was going to be answers to questions on hell. Instead, we had to change the title to hard questions on hell because I'm not sure I can answer all of them. Uh, Last week, we we addressed, uh, not necessarily answered, what happens to babies or infants when they die. Uh, We talked about since all are born and need to be born again or go to hell, um, how to be sure. Oh, dear, my paper's halfway cut off. I hope I get all these right. Um, uh, How to be sure uh, that you're saved is important. Then uh, we addressed the question... um, what a, uh, did Christ experience eternal in tor- torment in hell before his resurrection and ascension? Uh, this week, um, we're going to be addressing uh, three more questions. Uh, one of them is, is a big question that I'll have to kind of devote a little more time to. Uh, the first question we'll be addressing is, what about the lukewarm? I know, but I want to talk about it. Um, <laughs> Next uh, is you focused on locality, heaven versus hell, and ignored the explicit language in all the texts of life versus death. No wonder so few can hear what you're saying and why you experience such difficulty when you try to explain God's purposes to punish the human soul for eternity. And then uh, sixthly, uh, there's a question about what is the difference between some of the terms that are used? What is the difference between Sheol, Hades, Gehenna? Uh, What is the meaning of these passages? So first of all, uh, this week we're we're addressing uh, the passages dealing with the lukewarm. And in order to address these questions, uh, we've got to turn to Revelation. We're going to be in Revelation a a decent amount today, uh, just to give y'all a a heads up. So as we look at what happens to the lukewarm, turn with me to the last book in your Bibles. We're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 2. 
verses 12. The, the passage where it deals with lukewarmness is dealt with in uh, uh, the address to the church in Pergamum. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. And, the angel, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name. I might have picked the wrong church. 3.14. Sorry, I'm, uh, I'm sorry about that. 3.14, we're in Laodicea, not Pergamum. Th- thanks. Uh, I've, I started reeling it and realized this isn't the right one. There's seven churches and I picked the wrong one. <laughs> Revelation 3, verse four, beginning in verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white garments, so that you may clothe yourself. And the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant with him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, I'll first of all warn you that my take on this passage is a little bit different than probably some of the things you've heard about this lukewarmness, hot and cold. I believe that the hot and the cold don't really refer to spiritual extremes, but they're more likely refers, refer to usefulness. Uh, the church at Laodicea was in a valley. And there, there were two things you could do uh, from the church. The area they were in actually didn't have uh, a lot of water that was accessible to it. So one thing you could do is you could go up into the mountains... And you could get fresh, cool spring water flowing, or, or not spring water, but, but rivulets coming out of the mountains would bring fresh, cool stream water. Now, if you went down further in the valleys, further towards the sea from Laodicea, there was an area that had hot springs where you could get water. Now, in Laodicea, what they had was an aqueduct that took water from the mountains and brought it into the city. Now, if you, if you know what aqueducts are, they're kind of cha- these amazing feats of engineering that the Romans built that channeled water. It had water ro- rolling on top of these stones, and it brought it into the city. Now, what happens to the cool stream water as it's being flowing over hot stones for several miles to get into the city? Yeah, it warms up. gets a little tepid. So, so the analogy he's given here is, you know, I'd prefer you either hot water or cool, refreshing water, not this tepid, lukewarm water that I will spit out. 
So the, 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 a lot of times people say, are you on fire for the Lord? Or are you cool for the Lord? No, it's be useful for the Lord in whatever you are doing. And, and in the immediate context of this passage, the, the problem with the Laodiceans were they were self-sufficient. And therefore were not useful for the kingdom. And I would encourage you to go back and listen to, I believe it's Stacy's first message when he was filling on on hell. And he said, the type, he talks about the type of person who ends up in hell is somebody who is useless for the kingdom of God and its purposes. This is what it's a reference to. The people were becoming self-sufficient so that they wouldn't go to God to have their needs met and they wouldn't go to God to have him equip them for his purposes. So the lukewarm gets spit out and cast out, but it's not because they just don't decide to be either against or for God. If you, if you take that dynamic, it's almost saying it's better to be against God than neutral to God. But I take it as it is best to be useful to God and his purposes, to be hot or cold, to be useful in those ways, not to be tepid and spit out. Okay, so that's addressing that question. Now we have a question, and I'll be honest, this one took a long time to answer because they accused me of ignoring all the text of the Bible. So how do you counter that? Well, you've got to look at all the texts of the Bible, and I, I, I must confess to y'all, I only got through about 57 of the passages on hell to answer this question. But there, there's a couple things going on this question. Uh, they're saying we've focused on locality, heaven versus hell, rather than condition, life versus death. Uh, and th- th- there it seems you've ignored the explicit language of scriptures. So I like this question uh, because it's focusing on big overarching paradigms. And, and, and I love stuff like that. It makes me feel bad because it makes me feel like I haven't communicated effectively because I've tried to address some of these issues. And then the second is really uh, shows a heart for evangelism. No wonder so few people can hear what you're saying and why you have a hard time explaining how God torturing people in hell for eternity is in line with his character. You know, that's, a, that's an evangelical concern. That is a sharing the gospel concern. So th- these are two things I, I want to really address. Uh, f- uh, and before we do that, I want to go back to something we said last week, but it bears repeating. And it's the principles we're using to answer these questions. Uh, number one, that scripture is the authority in all things. So that's another reason why it's important to address this question. If I've ignored the explicit language and descriptions of the Scripture, y'all are in trouble. I've been misleading you. So it doesn't matter what I say. It matters what Scripture has revealed on this issue. Uh, Secondly, we don't want to make blurry anything that is clear in Scripture. So we had to... to, we use this when there's uh, you know, something that's hard or difficult, and maybe we don't want to address it, so we try and fudge the lines a little. Uh, the third principle we addressed is the converse of that. If, if something's a little bit blurry, it's not explicitly revealed in Scripture, uh, we're not going to fill in the blanks. We're not going to make it clearer than Scripture makes it. And, and we had to use that a lot last week because some of the questions were dealing with issues that weren't talked a whole lot about in Scripture. And then fourthly, uh, we, 
need to have the idea of the progress of revelation. So there are some things in the Old Testament that might be less clear, and as we progress in the New Testament, they're revealed, they're shown more clearly. So, so if you have something in the Old Testament that's a little bit blurry and something in the New Testament that's clear, you give a preference to the New Testament passage. Uh, now, as I said, this deals with a bunch of passages. And I did something for you, but I'm not going to give it to you until you're leaving uh, because I know the way most people are, that if I gave it to you right up front, you would spend the whole time looking at the paper and not listening to me. Uh, and because I like attention, I'm going to wait to give it to you. Um, but I went through and I listed, like I said, I think it's 57 of the passages that are dealing with this concept of uh, God's eschatological condemnation. Uh, so I won't use the word health in order to try and address this question from a neutral standpoint. And also the, the d- descriptions of eschatological blessing. And one of the things I'll say to this question is, we really haven't been talking about those dynamics of heaven versus hell or life versus death. Because we've only been focusing on hell. So we've limited our discussion to that, and we really haven't talked a lot about the dynamics. We've mainly just been talking about hell. But it's still worthwhile to answer the question, is is the right dynamic life and death or heaven and hell? I'd actually say that uh, scripturally, it might actually be life and hell are an appropriate understanding of it. Uh, So in the back, you'll have uh, a a list of all the... uh, all the passages I got to, I'm, I'm still working on this list. There's about 57 of them. And they'll give you a brief description of the way in which God's blessing and God's cursing in the end times is described, or after death is described. Uh, one of the things I, I, I saw is that death is tied for about seventh in terms of the most common descriptions used for hell. Uh, the most common is, is fire or burning. Uh, this occurs about 20 times. Um, the second most is uh, judgment, condemnation, or cursing. That occurs about 15 times. Uh, thirdly, you have destruction, either in imagery or description described. That occurs about 11 times. Fourthly, you have the word hell or Hades, which occurs about 10 times. Fifthly, uh, you have cast out or departed that occurs about nine times. Uh, Sixthly, which occurs about six times, you have weeping and gnashing of teeth describing this condition. And then uh, tied for seventh, you have outer darkness and death or loss of life described. Now, it... In the, in the 57 or so passages we had, um, not in every passage was there a counterpart of what the eternal blessed state was described as. Uh, in about 34 of the passages there was, in the rest they were, a- they were absent. Uh, what I didn't do is go and look through all the passages describing life, but not describing condemnation or hell. Because, again, this is a series on hell. Um, so of those 34, 10, about 10 times, and by the way, it can have multiple references in a single passage, uh, if you're wondering how I do the 
calculations, about 10 times there occurs this description of life. So life is a much more common description for the eternal state of blessedness than death is for the unblessed state, for the, for the curse description. And one of the things you have to account for if you believe that life and death is the biblical paradigm is then why in so many passages where life is described as the blessed state, do the scriptures use something else for a description of death? In Matthew 7.13, it says, Narrow is the great, hard, uh, hard is the way that leads to life. But the counterpoint is that the wide, easy way leads to destruction. There, there are many other passages, Matthew 18, 7 through 9. It, it talks about entering life twice, but the counterpoint to that is being thrown into eternal fire and thrown into the hell of fire. One of the things we have to account for is that the Scripture contrasts life with hell and judgment. Now, this isn't to say that there are no passages that deal with the concept of life and death. And in fact, I want to look at a few of them to try and understand them better. Because one of the things this is talking about is it's talking about paradigms. It says we've been focusing on the place rather than the condition. I'd also like to challenge that a little bit. Because every week we've been here, I think since the second or third week, we've had this right behind us. So what is it? Hell is the place of eternal conscious torment separated from the felt presence of God and His grace. What's that describing? That's describing a condition. That's describing what what the people are going through and experiencing. So it's important to define your terms. You know, if people just think of a place where a red guy is running around with a pitchfork, we need to define hell. But in the same way, when the Scripture speaks about death, we need to define that. So let's look at some of the passages that deal with this life and death issue and see how does Scripture really deal with it. Um, Let's look at Romans 5, 12 through 21 first. All right, this is one of the famous passages on death and life. Death is in Adam, life is in Christ. Uh, so let's look at it together. Let's read uh, Romans 5, 12 through 21. We're obviously not going to cover everything that is contained in this passage. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. But the free grift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of God of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. 
but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, whereas, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We here have a presentation of a death coming through Adam and life through Christ. And one of the things I will say, uh, which makes this death and life dynamic a little more difficult to interpret as we look through all of scriptures, is that death can be a reference to the eternal condemned state that occurs. And it can also be a reference to the present separation from God in people's lives. Here we have, as a result of Adam, death coming, and it is this ruling, reigning force in people that control them, that brings condemnation. And then life is its counterpoint, eternal life through Jesus Christ, it says in the last verse. Now, as this passage talks about death, and as it talks about judgment, and as it talks about condemnation, one of the things we have to realize is that Paul has already talked about God's wrath, God's judgment, and God's condemnation. So when he, he's talking here about these things, he's assuming his readers have read through the rest of the book and have that definition intact. And I would say that the discussions of death as a judgment and condemnation must be interpreted through Romans 2. Uh, so if you will, just turn back several pages to Romans 2, looking at verses 6 through 11. He will render to each according to his works, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. So as we continue to read Romans, we have to understand that he's already defined these things and that when we think of the death that comes through judgment, we must think of wrath and fury, tribulation and distress, that that's what he's talking about when he's talking about that death later on. Uh, now, the, the next passage we're going to see is, is also going to bolster that view. Oh, let's, uh, from Romans, jump into Revelation, and hopefully this time I'll give you the right place to go in Revelation. Uh, let it, let's look at Revelation 20. This is another place where, where death shows up in an interesting way. 
in, in reference to God's eschatological judgment. But again, as we've said, just with, like with hell, we have to define that death, and we ought to define it biblically. So Revelation 20. Uh, let's look at verse 6 real quick, because this shows the condition of those who are eternally blessed. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. All right, now jump down to Revelation 20, and we're going to look at Revelation 20, 13 through 15. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, here death is mentioned as something that is in contrast, in context of God's eternal judgment. One of the things I would point out, though, is uh, death in Hades here, and, and kind of throughout Revelation, have kind of a specific meaning that they're talking about. One of the things they're shown as is they're shown as these concepts, these ideas that are opposed to the rule and reign of God in his kingdom. So, um, well, I'll, put it, I'll give you two different ways it's been explained. One is that death is the physical con- consequence of sin, and Hades is the spiritual consequence of sin. Now, uh, another more technical way to talk about Hades in, in this passage is actually as Hades is the place of disembodied torture and torment. Disembodied. So in, in Scripture you have something. We have this uh, in, in the passage where it talks about Lazarus and the rich man. La- Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom. Where does the rich man go? He goes to Hades where he is in torment. He is being tortured. Now, as he was in that place, one of the things you see is that it w- he didn't wait until the resurrection to get there. A- another thing you'll see is that the same with the blessed state. When, the, when Lazarus dies... It doesn't take him some time to get into heaven. It says right away he's brought to Abraham's bosom. This is also why Jesus can say to the thief on the cross, you will be with me in paradise today. So there's a state of judgment and a state of reward that occurs before the final judgment and the final reward. Now, in the end, it shows God throwing death and Hades into a lake of fire. Now, this isn't to say that after that, everybody is dead. Because what happens right after that? If anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. They're thrown in after death and Hades are thrown in. So guess what? They can't die. Death's been destroyed. And this is called the second death. Now, 
The second death should be defined like it's described, a lake of fire. Now, this lake of fire, I want you to think of it as a place where God conquers, contains, and condemns that which is opposed to him. The the forces and the powers that oppose him are beaten, bound, and burned in the lake of fire. I'll say it again. (laughs) I just heard somebody whisper, you should say that again. (laughs) The lake of fire is where God conquers, contains, and condemns that which is opposed to him. It is a place where those things are beaten, bound, and burned. And first you have it as these abstract principles that have no place in his kingdom anymore. Whereas death and Hades are reigning and ruling now, once his kingdom is established, guess what? They have no place or part in that, so they have to be relegated to the lake of fire. And those who are opposed to God and his purposes, whose names are not written in the book of life, are also placed there separated from God and his presence forever. So this idea of of death comes up, but the second death is not like our mortal death. It's described as a lake of fire, a continued existence in that state. I mentioned earlier that by far double, or well, almost far and above the most common description for the eternal state separated from God's presence is fire. It is burning. And one of the questions you get over and over is, well, is is that metaphorical or actual fire? But the way I answer that is that this world has been given to us so that we might understand spiritual things. That is, the fire that exists here is to remind us and reveal something to us about the greater fire. The kind and the quality of that fire is distinct because the people in that fire are living in darkness. A a fire here on earth emits light. Fire there is contained in darkness. A, A fire here on earth burns temporally until its fuel source is exhausted. The fires described in the scriptures refer to it as an eternal fire. So so the kind and quality is different, but we've been given fire here to give us some semblance of an idea what the real thing is. So I I, I encourage y'all as you leave, Take one of the sheets in the back. Examine what I have been saying against Scripture. Look up at the passages. Make sure the way I'm describing it, the way I'm speaking to you, is using biblical languages, is using biblical ideas described in a biblical way. Uh, there, there's three sheets, uh, so just grab three of them. They're not stapled or anything. I was rushing like crazy to make sure I had everything for you. Um, if we run out or if you want a digital copy, email me and I'll email you a copy. Uh, like I said, I still want to work on it. There's more passages I haven't gotten to yet. But this will give you an idea of how does Scripture define these states? How does it describe it? 
And I encourage you to take seriously the descriptions of Scripture and examine them carefully. What is being said by them? What is being meant by them? Now, the second half of the question deals with how do people hear this? When they hear all these awful things about hell, what do you do? That's hard for people to hear. That's difficult for them to understand. Uh, I want to give you a, a quote that's from one of the books we've been looking, or one of the books we've recommend called Hell Under Fire. This is a... And this is going to be a quote and then a statement from the book. The quote is from a guy by the name of F.W. Farrar, who was um, of Westminster Abbey. He says, But I here declare and call God to witness that if the popular doctrine of hell were true, I should be ready to resign all hope, not only of a shortened, but of any immortality, if thereby I could save not millions, but one single human soul from what fear and superstition and ignorance and inevitable hate and slavish letter worship have dreamed and thought of hell. End of that quote, and now to what the book says about that quote. This statement is incredibly revealing. For it demonstrates a momentous shift in theology and the culture. Whereas preachers in earlier areas were concerned to save persons from punishment in hell, Farrar and his like-minded colleagues were determined to save their congregations from the fear of the idea of hell. Saints, our objective isn't to save people from the fear of hell or even the dread of hell. Hell is dreadful for a purpose. It is described in dreadful terms for a purpose. My objective is not to soften it, to sugarcoat it, to make it a pill easy to swallow. And I have no trouble describing God as being just and holy and righteous in condemning sinners to hell because I know his character and I therefore know what sin offends against. And I recognize that that is a reality that is not only deserved for others, but it is deserved by me. When I see my sin for what it is, I have to recognize that if God is who he says he is, if he is as holy, as just, as gracious as he is, if everything I have, if my life and breath and everything has been given to me by him, and that my sin is an offense against his righteousness, his holiness, who gave me all those things, not only gave me all those things, but sacrificed his son that I might have a relationship with him. Guess what? A sin against a God that holy, that mighty, that worshipful deserves a severe and eternal punishment. We discussed this some earlier when we talked about the punishment of the sin is primarily in reference to the one who has been offended by it and the value you place on that person. Now, I I will agree, this is hard for people to hear. It's hard to hear that God treats sin so severely. 
especially when we recognize the fact that we are sinful. It's hard to hear those things. But do you know what? People need to hear it. That's what we're trying to save them from. Our goal isn't to present a view of sin or hell that is tolerable and then save people from that watered-down version of hell. Our objective is to present God and Christ as He is. To some, guess what? You're going to have a horrible reaction to that. But some are going to repent and be saved. You see this all throughout Acts. Paul preaches the same gospel in every city he goes to. Half the time he gets stoned or beaten or dragged out of the city, imprisoned. And even in the same context where he gives the same message, some people believe and start following. Well, the difference isn't in the message. He doesn't water down and change it to get out of jail, to get out of prison, to get out of being persecuted, to get out of the anger of the people who couldn't understand a God like that. He keeps the message the same. And he trusts the Holy Spirit to work in their lives. To some, the gospel will be an aroma of death leading to death. And to the others, an aroma of life to life. Our objective is not to change it so that it will be acceptable, but to demand that people accept God as He is for who He is and what He has done. Last question. Oh gosh, I'm going to have to do this in four minutes. Uh, The last question is about Sheol, Hades, and Gehenna. Uh, What's the difference between these terms? Uh, To whoever asked this last week, I will give a recommendation of a a great book that covers this in more depth than I have, uh, than I will, and that I stole some of the ideas from, is The Doctrine of Endless Punishment uh, by William, I think it's C.T. Shedd. I can't read that Gothic script for one of the initials, but uh, William Shedd, The Doctrine of Endless Punishment. One of the things you see reading Shedd is the the problems and issues we are dealing with now in terms of people not wanting to accept or not liking the doctrine of hell. Guess what? It's not new. Been around for a while. Um, So he's addressing some of the concerns. And uh, so just briefly, uh, Sheol is a Greek word. Sorry. I already messed up. Sheol is a Hebrew word. Uh, Hades is a Greek word, and and Gehenna, I believe, is is Greek, but it might be a a, a transliteration of an Aramaic word. So Sheol can refer to either God's place of punishment for the wicked or the grave. It's used primarily in the Old Testament for these descriptions. One of the questions would be then, well, how do you tell the difference between the two? Uh, It's context. Uh, So one of the ways we know that Sheol refers to the place of condemnation for the wicked is uh, look at the Psalms, look at places where it shows up. A lot of times it says, you know, the wicked, their footsteps lead to Sheol. Well, if it's just the grave, guess what? Everybody's going to the grave. When it talks specifically about this place being a destiny for the wicked and a consequence of sin, it's referring to a a place of judgment by God. Uh, Hades, similarly, can refer either to the place of of God's punishment against sin or the grave. Uh, However, with Hades in the New Testament, more often than not, it is a reference to the spiritual place of condemnation. 
There's a a large percentage that Sheol does. The percentages of Hades referring to that judgment are even higher. So Hades, when it appears, it's usually translated hell. Uh, But the terms kind of just neutrally are very similar. In fact, when you have the when you have the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, they were, the word they use to translate Sheol is Hades. Uh, Gehenna, instead of having two options, you just have one option. It's a reference to the place of torment and, and torture. Uh, let me read to you a quote. Gehenna, at the time of the advent, had become a technical term for endless torment, as paradise and Abraham's bosom had for endless blessedness. So by the time Jesus gets around, Gehenna was originally a valley outside of Jerusalem that at one point was used for idol worship, then became the city dump where things were burned, putrefied, you know, it's the dump, it's the sewage center. And it, but by the time Jesus came around, it didn't mean dump anymore. It meant the place of eternal conscious torment. Okay, so those answer mostly questions. Uh, as we end this, one of the things I want to emphasize is the doctrine of hell is so important. The doctrine of hell is so important. Our theology shapes our lives and practices. And what we believe about God's punishment of sin determines how we treat sin. Is sin something light and not that big a deal? Or is sin something weighty that brings the eternal wrath of God upon it? That affects our view of God. How does God treat sin? How holy is he? How righteous is he? How just is he? It affects our view of salvation. How much we understand the awful terrors of hell will determine how much we value the saving work of our Lord Jesus Christ. If it weren't for that fact alone, I probably wouldn't have covered the topic. I want you to have a deeper appreciation, a stronger love for Christ and His work, and that's why I've presented to you this doctrine. It hopefully also gives us an impetus to share the gospel. We praise God that He has saved us from this, and we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ so that others might be saved from it as well preaching Christ and Him crucified, the only hope for sinners like you and like me. Are we proclaiming the truth of God to those who are destined to be separated from God? There's two things we need to be able to do that. Or There's two things, prerequisites. Number one, you've got to love God and think He's worthy of proclaiming. Number two, you've got to love the people you're proclaiming to, recognizing that you were in their condition before God found you and saved you. Let us close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We pray, Lord, that we would understand you as you are, as you reveal yourself in your word to us. Lord, 
Give us ears to hear and eyes to see what your word has from us, for us. Lord, may your Holy Spirit work within us to produce men and women who proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and the salvation that can be found only in him to a lost and dying world. Lord, may we not be intimidated, but may we be emboldened by your Holy Spirit for these purposes. Lord, I pray this for my own life. I need to be faithful and loving in proclaiming this truth to myself and to others. Lord, grant us the power to do this, recognizing that it's not our proclamation that saves people, but you and your mighty work. We pray that you might work mightily and move mightily in our lives, in our church, in our city, in our nation, in your world, Lord, for your glory and your purposes and your praise. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.